Uh, will you do this? Will you pray with me? And then um, we're going to talk about the subject of trusting God. And I can tell you, uh, this message on trusting God, I don't know how many times I have preached this, this message. I change it every time, but it is so applicable. In my own discipleship and counseling with people, this message of trusting God is something that uh, is continually, it's a rinse and repeat. Years ago, I read a book called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. That book uh, made an imprint on me at a very pivotal point in life. And uh, the, some of the concepts from that book, and as I've grown in my understanding of trusting God through the years, uh, I've continue, is, has continually molded my understanding of the subject. And so uh, I look forward again of, of just talking about this subject of trusting God again, uh, to work on this message again. And so I'm excited to share with you uh, what God has for us this morning as we trust God in the midst of where we're at. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to have this common grace of technology uh, that um, although we are not meeting uh, as God's people physically, uh, God's people are meeting in the cyber world. Um, They even have the ability to post as this sermon goes on right now. They have the ability to say things to each other. And so thank you for that grace that you give us at this moment in time in history for your purpose and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I woke up this morning and, you know, the thought in my mind, as I told you, we wrestled as elders about not meeting uh, together. And, um, you know, I, I, I still fight the idea sometimes as this uh, ridiculous notion. Um, but I think even history bears out to us. Um, if you look back in history about the Spanish flu in 1918, uh, you can take two cities and look at what happened when people limited their exposure to each other in the midst of an epidemic. Um, The Spanish flu in 1915, the Spanish flu took 675,000 American lives. The hardest hit was Philadelphia, and one of the least hardest hit was St. Louis. Now, those two areas do have different populations. Philadelphia has had a million and a half at that time. St. Louis had close to 700,000. So um, a little bit different populations. However, two different things happened uh, regarding those two cities. Both cities in the spring were to have a huge parade that was meant to raise bonds for the war. And both cities were scheduled to have those. Both were going to be very big events. Uh, Philadelphia decided to continue to have theirs in the midst of the Spanish flu, and St. Louis canceled theirs as a result because they didn't want, not want, didn't want to spread, uh, spread it more. In the end, when the Spanish flu was done, 16,000 people died in Philadelphia. When they had the parade, 200,000 people showed up. It was an awesome parade. But as a result, the Spanish flu spread more heavily, and 16,000 perished in the Philadelphia area. St. Louis canceled theirs, that same parade, And in the end, they had 700 parish in St. Louis. So there is a difference that God's people can be called to in a time and season of trying to love each other. Now listen, this all may be overkill, and we may may in the end uh, not have as widespread, and this may not have an effect on the vulnerable populations. It will be one of those things that it will probably be hard to know on the backside, because if if this has worked, then then we kind of won't know. 
But if it hasn't, then we'll definitely know the, the consequences. So even in my own heart, I, I struggled even this morning of, man, is this a ridiculous thing that we're doing this morning? But I don't think so when we see what history is. And once again, our goal is to love our neighbor through this. And our goal is that this will result in us trusting God even more. And so I want to look at this idea of trusting God. I want to talk about it once again. And here's one of the things about trusting God. When we trust in God, it, 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 it seems sometimes illogical and it doesn't always seem to make sense. It's not easily uh, mathematically applied. Trusting God is not always one plus one equals two. Trusting God is one plus one equals two, but I don't understand why it comes up as five. I mean, this, trusting God is, sometimes seems very rational. Now, what does seem rational is obeying God. That makes completely good sense. It seems rational and objective. God has given us a command, and we obey that command. And a lot of times in our lives, we look at obedience to God as, 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 a, as an easier concept than trusting God, if you really think about it. So, for instance, study your Bible, love your enemies, give, attend church, avoid lust, avoid using slanderous speech, obey your parents, Love your wife like Christ loves the church. Respect your husband. Love your neighbor. All these are commands, and these commands seem very reasonable and rational. However, when bad things happen, it gets really hard to trust God. When things don't seem to work out exactly as we thought they should. When a young couple goes childless, it doesn't seem, it seems hard to trust God. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. When a child dies before their parents... That does not mathematically equate. And at that point, it seems hard to trust God because when a parent buries a child, it doesn't seem to add, it doesn't seem objective and rational. And it doesn't make sense like it does when, it, when the scriptures say, love God and love neighbor. That's an easier obey than trusting God when things don't seem to make sense. When we see things, for instance, like we see right now where our world is kind of going through some things with this virus. Like this doesn't completely all make sense. So trusting God actually I think is uh, really sometimes a lot more difficult than actually just obeying God. But yet, but yet this is something that God wants us to actually rest in and wrestle with. The people of Jesus' day had the same problem, the religious leaders. The most religious people of Jesus' day, they had no problem obeying God. But when it came to trusting him, that was a whole different perspective. If you were to look at, and I'm going to reference a couple of scriptures, so you may or may not be able to keep up with me. I'm going to be referencing several parts. This is more of a, a topical message. But if you were to look at Matthew 27 and verse 41 through 43, even the religious people of Jesus' day, they seem to understand the concept of, of obedience, but they have a hard time with the concept of trusting. So, for instance, in verse 41 of Matthew 27, it says, so also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him. This is Jesus. He's now at the cross. The most religious people are mocking him. In verse 42, it says, this is what they say. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He, if he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. So here we see even the religious people were saying, like, we would believe him if we can see the evidence. We we, you know, and then they say in verse 43, he trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he desires him, for he says, I am the son of God. It 
seemed irrational to them that Jesus could be who he said he was and not put a stop to the cross. Because these religious leaders, they even had of trouble with trusting God. They could only trust God if they could see the proof. And even when we read the scriptures and we read about the religious life of these people, they were really big into obedience. In fact, sometimes their obedience crossed over many times into something called legalism. But this is this just shows you, even in biblical times, people have always struggled with this idea of trusting God during the most difficult times. But God does view our distrust of him in even serious times as disobedience. Why? Because when we distrust God, we question his authority, we despise his holiness, we question his sovereignty, his goodness, his wisdom, and his love. A great example would be Psalm 78. Psalm 78 uh, is chronicling when Israel complained in the wilderness about their hunger and they spoke of their distrust in God. And we see in this text of Psalm 78, verse 19 through 20, that, that God is much... That, that God is not pleased with the disobedience of not trusting him. It says in chapter 78 of Psalm, verse 19, They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out, the streams overflowed. Can he give bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, the people were questioning God's care of them. They were questioning, could they trust him? Therefore, the Lord, the Lord heard this, and it said he was full of wrath, a fire kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. We see even Israel had a problem trusting God. And by the way, he had given them all the evidence that, they, that he could be trusted, all the evidence that his power was sufficient, all the evidence of his goodness. But yet, in a critical time, they distrusted him and God was displeased. So as much as it makes sense to, to obey God, and that it seems very rational in our mind, like read your Bible, yes, I get that, I understand that, have time with the Lord, yes, pray, yes, I get that. But still the idea of trusting him in the midst of difficulty is still an act of obedience, is still something that God wants. And I will tell you, I think like having time with the Lord in your Bible, in prayer, being generous with your giving, being generous with your life, being generous with your resources, persevering for righteousness sake. Like these are all can be hard things to do. But I think trusting God when things get really difficult and irrational and does not make sense, that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder when you go into the store and you see that a lot of the usual food supplies you have are gone and you wonder well, will they ever get restocked and be there? It's a lot harder when you work in a service industry and you depend on the daily tips from customers and yet those customers aren't there as much. It, it becomes a different perspective when things get really difficult, when your job is dependent on an economy that doesn't slow down. And now when an economy starts to slow down, it endangers your livelihood. Like this is the time where we really see, can we trust him when everything doesn't mathematically make sense? So I propose to you four things. These four things, um, I have, I cannot tell you how many times just in my time with people, I repeat these four, uh, these four things about God's character. Uh, I repeat them to myself. I repeat them over and over. And every time... It recenters me back on the character of God. What will put us in a position 
of trusting him even when things are difficult, even when things don't make sense. It's the character of God, a focus on his character, not on our wisdom, but his wisdom. So there are four truths in scripture that will help us when it gets difficult to trust God. And that is the four things are this. We've got to trust that in God's character that God is good, that God is love, that God is wise, and that God is sovereign. And when I say those four things, we'll kind of put in a phrase that some of this is from Jerry Bridges' book, and then some of it I've mixed in a little extra of my own. But here is a phrase that I hope when we walk away from this message this morning, we have this phrase. I I repeat this phrase if you've been in our church and we've had personal time. I more than likely have repeated this phrase to you before, but I think it's it's good for our souls to hear this once again in the midst of, of really... Um, unprecedented actions. Uh, not in my time have I seen us kind of make these kind of uh, these kind of actions that, from a government to a state to a global level, in response to something. So here's what the state. Here's the phrase: God, in His goodness, does what is best. God, in His love, wills what is best. God, in His wisdom, knows what is best. And God, in His sovereignty, has the power to bring it about. This is, this is, if you walk away with anything from this, this message, if you can write this phrase down, if you can rememorize this, if when, when fear wants to settle in into your soul in the midst of, of everything that can happen, when the next news story comes across the wire, if we can remind ourselves that God in his goodness does what is best, God in his love wills what is best, God in his wisdom knows what is best, and God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about, We will be able to trust God and be obedient no matter the circumstance. Let's look at that first idea. God in his goodness does what is best. God in his goodness does what is best. Every situation in life can be trusted to the hand of God because God is the definition and source of all good. There's no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and what he approves. James 1.17 says every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above. Because that's the character of who God is. Matthew 7.11 says this. Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, which evil, sinful people, he's saying, can give good gifts to your children, how much more will will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Jesus just makes a point and says, If even sinful men can do this, then what? how much more... The, the, the character of a good God. Romans 8, 28, describing, describing the outworking of God's goodness in our life, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is good. And, his, and in His goodness, He brings about and does what is best. So the question hap- that people come at this point would say, Well, what happens if something bad happens? What happens if... When bad happens, is he still good? Do we have to call a bad situation good? No. We can admit and lament over a situation and say this is bad. Like I can look at the coronavirus and go, this is bad. From an earthly human perspective, this is bad. But in the midst of all that, I can still say that God is good and that God has a plan for this and that he can be trusted. Now, I will tell you this. Sometimes in the scriptures you'll see that sometimes what we perceive to be bad is actually God being good, and we just don't have the ability to look behind the curtain or see the back of the, of the tapestry. 
I love Hebrews 12 because Hebrews 12 speaks about God's discipline. But a lot of people think when they read Hebrews 12, God's discipline is for something you've done wrong directly. But really in that text, that God's discipline in Hebrews 12 is a little bit more of a proactive thing. It's kind of like Paul's thorn in the flesh when we see in 2 Corinthians. Paul's thorn in the flesh didn't happen as a result of his sin. It happened preemptively to protect him from the pride of his own sin. And so that he would find his sufficiency and strength in God alone. So basically, God gave Paul that thorn in the flesh. So in the end, Paul would trust in the Lord and not in himself, in his strength and not his own strength. So we see even in Hebrews 12 this idea and concept. That sometimes even bad things that happen in our life are the end are to promote holiness and show his goodness even further. I'll read a little section of Hebrews 12, 9 through 12. It says this. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees in verse 12. Hebrews 12 is, is really preemptive discipline. And he's just making a point of saying that an earthly father does things to help mold the character for holiness and righteousness to his own, like an earthly father does. This is what the heavenly father, but Hebrews 12 is a preemptive kind of thing. So in the midst of difficulty, God is good. Even though I can look at a situation and say it's bad, I can look behind, I can say behind the curtain, I know that God is good and that he is working this out for my good and my holiness. And this helps me to trust him. Now, at this point, it gets very hard. This is where this idea of you've got to believe that God is good. If you don't believe that God is good, that his character is good, then it's going to be hard for you to push in to trust him. That's a key component. You know, there's a story that I read a couple of weeks ago where it talked about that a young generation is exercising more than ever. Like, Kids in their 20s, they're exercising more than they've ever exercised. Kids in college, they're exercising more than my generation ever did. And it seems like even my generation, they start working out when they're in their 40s. Kind of, you know, They kind of realize that you, you can't eat like you did in your 20s and 30s. You've got to take a little bit better care of yourself when you get into your 40s. Most of us really weren't concerned. But they, uh, actually, a very young generation, uh, especially in the early 20s, they're known already for having excellent habits of exercise. But what they're saying is that that generation is actually over-exercising. They're exercising more that's, act, that, that's actually needed, and actually many of them are harming their health. Many of them are wearing out their joints and ligaments at an earlier age than what would happen. So they're going a little too far. They're over-training. Well, when it comes to God's goodness, when it comes to what God does in difficult circumstance, God does not over-train us. He trains us in such a way that it results in holiness and righteousness and for our good. But he's not trying to drive us into a situation where, where, where we are ultimately going to do ourselves harm. Because he's good. Now that doesn't mean that, 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 that bad things won't happen. That doesn't mean that, that there won't be earthly difficulties. That just means that God's hand is always on the situation and that it's never off. That means that you can lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And that any, anything that happens in life 
God is trying to promote holiness, a conformity to his image, trying to make much of his name in the end for our own good to bring us to the fruits of righteousness. I've even seen in the midst of this, though I, I look at what we're going through and, and say that I can see the earthly bad part of it, you can even see the hand of God in the earthly good that some people in the midst now are starting to consider eternity. They're starting to consider that life is short, that we are finite, and that, and that you, we can't put off the idea of coming face to face with a holy God. And so even though the situation is bad, you can even see the handiwork of God behind the scenes that people are now evaluating, like, what does eternity look like for them? Are they in Christ? Is their eternity set and secure? But you even see this, and here's what I love about this situation. This situation is challenging God's people to ask themselves, do I truly love God, Love other people like I love God? And, and, and this is, I'll give you for instance. I think it is very responsible that in the midst of this, people um, have been preparing so that there's resources for their home. But then the flip side comes is, is this is a test of trusting God. His goodness is, do you over-prepare? Like there's a, a place where a person over where there's not enough resources for everybody that needs to go to the, the market and get what they need. So there's that balance where a person has to now answer that question. Do I believe God will be good to me? That's, that's a good question that people have had to ask themselves over the last several weeks. Even more, let me give you another. Those who, I mean, uh, in, in any community, there are those who prep. And even in our church body, there are those who are prepped that they could, that they're prepped more than a couple weeks. They're prepped for the long term. And that's a, that can be a really good thing. Now, anybody that's prepped for the long term, you know, this will be a challenge of trusting in God because do we trust God enough that we've prepped, we've prepped so that we can actually bless others? So this is one of the things that, that Christians have to realize that in any kind of community, like even in our church, there are some in our church that they are kind of more paycheck to paycheck. They couldn't really prep for this. And what a great test of do we trust in God's goodness that are we going to be willing to share with them when they, if they run short, if it, for those who have been able to prepare. Will God's people rise up and show an unbelieving world what it means to, to, to trust his goodness and give your resources to help others? So I think this is a good thing that God does this. So I don't have to call the situation good, but I have to say that God's character is good and that what he's doing in this is good because God is good. And in his goodness, he always does What is best? I'll give you the best example of this is the cross. All those around the cross perceived it as bad. The religious leaders, the Romans, also his followers, they all, from their perspective, this was a negative thing. Now, although the religious leaders were celebrating it because it got them what they wanted, and the Roman government, same thing, and all his followers were discouraged from it, from all their perspectives, this seemed like a bad thing. This was not good in the grand scheme of things. But yet, in the end, was not the cross really actually something beneficial? Although, from an earthly perspective, it looked bad. But from behind the tapestry, from behind the curtain, you could see that God had his, had his good hand on the work of the cross. The work of the cross was actually working out for my good and your good. I love Romans eight thirty one thirty two. It emphasizes this point. It says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The work of the cross is the ultimate sign that things can be looking bad outwardly, but God can be doing good things that you just don't even know that's happening behind the curtain that will only be revealed in his time. We will trust God when we know that he's good. And in his goodness, he always does what is best. My justification once again is the work of the cross. How do I know God is good? The cross. That's my justification in the end. That's how I know. And on top of that, we have the justification of the scriptures that over and over. This is what's great about when you read the Bible in its entirety, you start to understand in context this, this, is, this is not a haphazard God. This is a God that had a plan and a point and was working his good plan. Even in the midst of man's sinfulness, even in the, in the midst of man constantly going far from God's plan of redemption, God is always moving it back on track, moving from his sovereign hand behind the scenes in his goodness. So when we believe that God is good and in his goodness he does what is best, We'll trust him. But that's not alone. Believing that God is good, but also believing God is love. God is love. So God in his goodness does what is best. God in his love wills what is best. He wills what is best. John 4, 7, very simple verse, says God is love. John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. When we love someone, we always do what is best for them. In his love, he always wills what is best. I think the best illustration that I can always see is just with my own children. They're, especially the younger your children are, they cannot see the reason you do things as a parent. So, for instance, um, uh, you know, each of our children, there was a certain time in life where they were young enough that we, we had to make sure and warn them about the, the stove. And we had to... We had to discipline them heavily when they would try to put their hand on the stove or try to put their hand on the knob. And it wasn't one of those things where you just talked to them. You, you made sure that their hand got spanked that they, and it hurt them at the moment. They did not like it at the moment. It, it seemed like you were impeding on their sovereign will. But in the end, because I love my child, I will what is best for them. And in love, I know the best for my children is not to let their tiny little hands get on the stove. See, God is the same way. He's much like this. And in his love, there are things that he does in our life so that we're that, that they're the best for us. That's what his love actually does. I love that God is I love the fact that the doctrine of the Trinity, because in the doctrine of the Trinity, we see that God knows a lot about love. Like God has been loving from eternity past, way before we ever came around. So for instance, we can see in John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am and see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I like in John 14, 31, where Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father, the Father and the Son, these Part of the Trinity. They were loving each other. Walking in this perfection of that. And this is, this is one of my justifications for knowing that, that in his love he will always will what is best. God has been loving and been in loving relationship before I ever came around. Plus, once again, I have the evidence of the cross to know that God loves me. It says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates or shows his love for us 
And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love wills what is best. We'll trust him. Now, now listen, once again, that doesn't mean you have to say every situation is, is the best when you look at it. So when the two-year-old's hand gets spanked when they get near the stove, the two-year-old's not thinking in their mind, this is what's for my best. They can't see everything at the moment. But the character of their parents is what is best. And they are loving them and willing love into their life. God does the same thing. He wills what is best in his love for us. And this is, once again, why the cross is our justification. This is, once again, if you're kind of listening to this message and you're like, this is impossible to to trust God like this, then my next question would be, are you in him? Do you even know his love? If you know his love, you know that he wills what is best. When I became a follower at 16, this is one of the things that was clearly true to me, that Jesus loved me. He loved me so much that he would not save himself from the wrath of God. And knowing this fact lets me know that, that even as bad as things get from an earthly perspective, I have a God who loves me. And when I can't trace his hand, I trust his heart. It's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, somewhat. He kind of quoted in the past, but I think it's great to still use. When you can't trace God's hand, you trust his heart. In his heart, over and over, through the, through the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, through the work of the cross, has clearly pointed to us that God is loving. And his love, I promise you people, he will always will what is best. So we know this. God in his goodness does what is best. God in his love wills what is best. Which brings us to the third idea, third thought about God's character. God in his wisdom knows what is best. God in his wisdom knows what is best. We will submit to God and trust him when we know that he is all wise and we are not all wise. Romans 11.33, still a great scripture. It says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Our failure to trust God happens when we trust our wisdom over his wisdom. This is the classic story of all of us. We, we as mankind who rebel against God in our natural state, we always want to trust our own wisdom. We always have a way we think God should act. And this is why I love the fact that he's infinite and we're finite. Because why would puny, finite man ever think that he can consult and tell what infinite God does? Even if you look at the solar system, just look at the solar system. It, when you look up at the stars, and as we keep exploring the solar system, it seems like it, it seems impossible. It seems miraculous. It is without end. It's like we can't even get to the depths of dis- discovering all of it. Which tells me this. Well, every time I look at, look at um, astronomy, I'm reminded this is an infinite God whose wisdom is far above mine whose creativity is far above mine, whose ideas are far above mine. The wisdom of God. So in the wisdom of God, he knows what is best. And part of us trusting God, we must believe in his goodness, the goodness of his character and the love of his character, but also the wisdom of his character. And, and 
And I don't know, I don't think people get this. I actually think people get tripped up when it comes to trusting God. I think this is probably one of the areas that we get tripped up a lot is the wisdom of God. Because we have all these ways that we think. And a lot of times the ways we think are a, res, are a response to our environment or how we were raised or what kind of education we have. Or a lot of times it's the books we're reading or the kind of media we're consuming or the social media sites or whatever we're reading. We... All these things influence us, and it's surprising. If we, I mean, this is why the scriptures are so essential to keep going back to day after day. Every day we're confronted with man's wisdom, and it's trying to go against God's wisdom. And what we do oftentimes in life is we set up this, we, with man's wisdom, we set up this idea of what we think God should actually be like. And a lot of times we think God should be like us. And a lot of times we think God should think like us. I think a great example would be John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, they, the disciples were going along, and they saw a man that was born blind, and the disciples had their earthly wisdom, their own wisdom that they had from their own experience and what they had thought. They had come to a conclusion that they didn't even doubt when they asked the question of Jesus about, about why this man was born blind. In John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And Jesus Passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So get this. This, the disciples already made their mind up about what wisdom was. They already had an idea. No questioning of it. In their mind, in their puny, finite minds, they had already decided why this man was born blind. They just, they just needed to know b- between a couple particulars. But, but, but it couldn't be outside these two realms. It had to be what it was. They'd already decided. And then Jesus answered and said, Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I mean, they thought that this, this, they, they had a wisdom, and that, their wisdom was this kind of karma idea of if bad things happen to people, it's because they've done bad things. So their idea is either the parents had to have sinned that he was born blind, or in, in, in the womb he must have, which is, is once again shows you the wisdom of man, how silly the wisdom of man really is when you follow it all the way down to its foundation. They were basically saying this man as a baby inside his mother's womb actively sinned in some kind of way. But Jesus blows open their wisdom completely and gives them another category, a category that they hadn't even considered. What does this show show us? That God is wise and we are not. And that in his wisdom, he always knows what is best. In the in the passage, he heals the man. And the reason he heals him is for the glory of his name, so that the works of God can be made manifest. God's wisdom always does and always knows what is best. Essential to trusting him is knowing that he is wise and we are not. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why this is happening at this point in history. I don't have all the wisdom behind this. But I do know this. I trust him. And I know in his wisdom, he, he always knows what is best. So what, what will I do during this time? I will put my nose in this book even more and try to continually look at his character. I will try to daily unwind the ideas that the wisdom and philosophies of this world have tried to put on my soul for, for me to decide how the infinite God thinks when, when, when the worldly wisdom can't really tell me that. I will put my mind here to try to see how actually does the infinite God th- think. 
Not from man's perspective, but from God's perspective. And this will build my trust in him. So we will trust God when we know that in his goodness he does what is best. In his love he wills what is best. In his wisdom he knows what is best. And lastly, and God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. There's a quote from Jerry Bridges' book that I think is really good. A couple of great quotes on this section of God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God, Jerry Bridges says, is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering heart must cling. Let me read that for you again. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering heart must cling. Undergirding the character of God's goodness, his love, and his wisdom... We have to believe that God is in control. We have to believe that he is sovereign. That word sovereign means that God has all power and all control. No one will ever be able to suffer well without that idea. Now, what's interesting is this. I know people who believe that God is in control and believe that he is sovereign, but they don't believe that God is wise, loving, or good. So that's an essential part of trusting rightly in his sovereignty. In fact, I would say this, when you believe in his sovereignty, but you don't have those other character aspects, sometimes you just become a fatalist. But when you have a strong dependence and trust in God's sovereign hand, then you actually don't become a fatalist, you become a prayer. So we see uh, examples in like, in Scripture that God is in control. And by the way, he's in control of all things, good and the bad. Lamentations, we studied this a couple years ago. In Lamentations 3.37, it says, Who is he that said, and it has not come to pass, when the Lord has commanded, and the Lord, when the Lord has not commanded it? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceed not evil and good. I mean, the... The lamenter is saying, like, God is in control of all things, even what is good and what is bad. Another quote from Jerry Bridges I think is really great in relation to God's sovereignty. He says, if there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. I want to read that quote for you again. If there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. Now, what a lot of people do is they have a belief which is called deism, which is this idea of God started the globe, he created it all, then he just kind of spun it, and now it's up to man to decide how everything works out. But God's hands are really off this. And in the midst of something like the, a virus, many people can just go like, God is nowhere in this, has nothing to do, has no hand over this. But I would say, if he is not, if there is a single event, including the coronavirus, in all the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. He is in control of this virus. Now, do I know all the whys? No. But I do know when I can't trace his hand, I can trust his heart. Now, sometimes at this point, people would go, okay, fine, Nick, I can, I get you. Fine. Like, God is still in control of this whole entire thing. I get that. But you know what? It's just Satan. Like, I'll just attribute any of the bad stuff to Satan alone. Now, let me not distract from that, that Satan does do bad things. We see that clearly in evidence in the scripture. But there's a unique line we must balance. We, can, we cannot be in a position of giving Satan no credit. And then we also must not be in the position of giving Satan all the credit. 
So now, where does that fall? I, I don't know all the time, but I can know there's a, there's a balance in there that we must be careful as we look at evilness in our world. So, like, in, for instance, a lot of people would go, okay, even the things with the coronavirus or death or bad things, that's only from Satan's hand. And I would say that's not actually true. God is sovereign and in control and in power over all that. Now, we can see clearly in Scripture that there are times that God uses Satan as his pawn to do his will. Okay? We see that in Scripture. You can't, you can't read something like Job and not see that, that Satan is allowed to do some destruction, but God's hand is always on the thermostat with that one. For instance, in Job 2.6... The Lord said to say, when, when Satan wants to take Job's life, it seems that the fact that he has to ask shows that he needs God's authorization. And God tells Satan, no. Job 2.6, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare your life. So, so, so Jesus says to Satan, like, okay, you can put your hand on his health, but you can't take his life. And in the midst of that, what that tells you is this. Ultimately, God is in control of the whole entire thing. Behind everything is his sovereign hand. And you can trust his sovereign hand if you know that he's wise, good, and loving. So in the end, he does not give him permission. Now, now notice this. Uh, people at the same time would go, well, the, the, then, then Satan can do other things. Like his children, you know, when, when they died too. But yeah, but because like what a lot of people say is this, that God has nothing to do with death. And you cannot believe in God's sovereignty and not believe that God is not in control of death. Clearly in the scriptures we are pointed that God is the one in control of life and death. Um, Hannah, when she had the child Samuel in her prayer, she declared in 1 Samuel 1.6, the Lord kills and he brings to life. Now sometimes the Lord uses Satan as his pawn to take someone's life. But in the end God is always the one in control. Sometimes he uses Satan. Sometimes God does it of his own hand. We can even see in the text of Job that God says to Job that, that God says to Satan, you can't take Job's life. You can affect his health, but not his life. But then we see that Job loses his children and loses it to, to, to the weather. And, and whose hand would that be in? Well, that would be in God's hand. So we see that God is the giver and the taker of life. He has complete control of all things. And I love, and, and the person would say, well, how do we respond to that? Well, Job one twenty one. Job says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I don't want to ignore the fact that Satan has an impact, but I don't want to give, that, I, I don't want to give him too much credit. I don't want to give him any credit at all. But here's where I want to continue to rest my soul, is that God is in control of that whole entire thing. And whenever he uses Satan, it is always as his pawn. Now, it's true that Satan does have the power of death. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. But we also know that he is not the one that has the ultimate authority over it. And I know people sometimes will quote scriptures like John 10, 10 and go, Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. How can you tell me that Satan doesn't have that kind of sovereign power? Well, one, I can tell you that when you read the context of John 10, it's not talking to Satan. It's talking about the false teacher. It's talking about... False teachers, that's what they want to do. False teachers want to come to kill, steal, and destroy. Like, so for instance, all the prosperity gospel preachers, they've come to steal, kill, and destroy. But that's, that's not what that text is talking about in that relation. I don't want to distract that Satan's a murderer. 
But I don't want to go to the fact that Satan has this authority who can float about the chessboard as he wants and do do whatever he wants. He is not a, a bishop that can float about the chessboard, but a pawn in God's sovereign hand. God, Jesus gives Pilate a lesson in this. If you were to look at John 19 and verse 10 through 11, John 19 and 10 through 11, and Pilate said to Jesus, uh, speak, 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 speak you not to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? I have the power to release you? So Pilate says to Jesus, I want you to know how much authority and power and sovereignty I have over you. And Jesus corrects him and says, you could have no power against me except it were given you from above. So God is sovereign, is all-powerful. His hand is over this whole entire virus. His hand is over whatever economic repercussions that come. God's hand is over this whole entire thing. I, now, can I dismiss that Satan and his henchmen might want to try, will try to capitalize and may have permission to do certain things? Can't distract from that. But what I, I can't deny that. But what I can affirm is that his hand is over this whole entire thing. And if God's hand is in control of all things, then I'm going to be okay in the end. I tell, I tell our people, I don't know how many times I've said it, but I love, I love the, how Paul trusts in the sovereignty of God. I mean, you couldn't win with the guy. If you told him not to preach Jesus because you're going to put him in prison, he would just say, great. Now, now I'm going to tell others about Jesus. Or we're going to beat you. And he just says, great, I get to suffer shame for his name. We're going to kill you. Great, I get to be with Jesus, which is far better. Like you could not beat the guy. And here's the thing. Christianity is the only religion on the planet that is built for hard times. In fact, anytime difficulty happens, we are the ones that know how to actually thrive, do more than just survive, but thrive in the midst of it. We have something sure, and that is the character of the very God of the scriptures that has shown us all the justification through the work of the cross, that God is in control, he is sovereign, that God is wise, that God is loving, and that God is good. God in his goodness does what is best. God in his love wills what is best. God in his wisdom knows what is best. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. So here's the conclusion. And I think I've preached for about 50 minutes. The, I already see the sovereignty of God in one thing. I am not worried that anybody is trying to get out of here. Okay, I'm not, I'm not even worried that the children's ministry is wondering how long is Nick going to keep preaching. Like, like this is so freeing this morning. Okay, so, uh, you know, just a side note. I can hear your virtual laughters, right? So I probably, I thought about actually putting my phone up here and seeing everybody's comments, um, but that would probably be very distracting. So let me finalize everything that I've said. What are some take-homes for us for this? Like, how does a, trust, a trusting God at this time, trusting in his sovereign hand, trusting in his wisdom, his love, and his goodness, how does this impact us. If we're thinking rightly about his character, what will that do boots on the ground right now, today, where we're at right now as we're watching this? I think it'll do a couple things. One, it'll do this. It'll drive you to prayer. It'll drive you to prayer. It will. See, a person who, who, who has, an un, has an unbiblical understanding of God's sovereignty, they become fatalists and they just kind of go, well, if it's going to happen anyways, what does it matter? But when a person actually knows that this is a God who has all power, that nothing is impossible with him, and that he is good and wise and loving, that person is driven to prayer. 
That person is driven to pray for the needs of people. That person is driven to pray uh, for people who will get sick during this time. That person is prays to, to ask that we could have a, a, um, a quick, um, quick, quick remedies for this virus. That person is led to pray for the economy and how it affects people, especially of lower income or maybe who may not have much of a savings account. It, it leads you to pray for your neighbors. It leads you to practice things like wise hygiene and appropriate social distancing so that you can love a neighbor. It, it causes you to magnify God's name. It will lead you to prayer. So even in our own souls, like the question would be this. If we really believe that God is in control and that he's wise, he's loving, and he's good, this will lead us to be a praying people. I love one of the quotes of Jerry Bridges in this chapter, two quotes in his book regarding prayer. He says this, Prayer is the most tangible expression of trust in God. It that would seem to not be, I mean, from a natural man perspective, we would think that. But, but get that. Prayer is a most tangible expression of trust in God. When difficulty happens, when fear happens, when you're experiencing that, hitting your knees and bowing your head and going to the Lord in prayer. Going, I mean, hitting, hitting your soul with the Lord's soul. He also said another quote that I think was very great. The knowledge of his sovereignty is meant to be an encouragement to pray, not an excuse to lap into some sort of pious fatalism. So if we really believe, if we're really trusting God in his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love and his goodness, it'll drive us to prayer. When you look through Christian history and see the men and women of God who were the most diligent prayers, the people who have calluses on their knees, even when you look globally right now, where the gospel is spreading the heaviest, where there are the most, um, um, I would say, dynamic, pioneering missionaries around the globe, when you ask these people, it's, it's just interesting, whenever you study these movements of God around the globe, what we always try to do is try to find out what's your secret sauce, what are the things that you're doing, what are, what's the organization, what's the kind of uh, protocols that you're doing that's resulting in, in this, this um, exponential work of God of discipling and people coming to faith and, and, um, and the gospel growing and the Great Commission happening. You, that's the thing that everybody asks. But when you see any great movement of God and any men or women that are at the forefront of that movement and you ask them what has caused this, every single time they'll say prayer. They'll do it. They'll do it. So this reveals uh, where we're at in this. Has the coronavirus resulted in our prayer lives increasing? Has it resulted in us going to the Father even more? Has it? If it hasn't, then that actually reveals where our trust is. Now, also another takeaway behind prayer would be this. This is an opportunity to also test, do we trust God, is this will test our love for each other. Are we willing, so for instance, if you've got vulnerable neighbors, are you willing to, to reach out to your neighbors and say, hey, if, if you need me to go to the store, like, so for instance, if you've got elderly neighbors, like, you should reach out to them and say, hey, do you need me to go to the store for you so that you're, there's a safety for you right now? Or your, your neighbor is sick and you run to the pharmacy. Or maybe your neighbor needs resources that you have in your home that you can share. Can, 
This will be a wonderful opportunity. Like, can you trust and love God? When people in, in our church, even in our own church, some people in our church, they only, they only get paid if they, actually, if they actually get to work. And some of their work won't be available. Are we willing to trust God enough that we would share our resources and be generous with each other, even within our body? This is going to prove, do we trust God? So, we'll, we'll, trusting God will be evidence is, do we grow in our prayer during this time? Do we grow in our love? You'll even see this, um, and, and by the way, this is not a shameful plug for money or anything of that nature. Um, you know, but uh, we last week, um, you know, last Sunday was kind of the first I think weekend that people in America were getting the bigness of, of what could be coronavirus. And in our elder meeting, um, we acknowledged that, our, um, that we actually had the worst offering we've ever had as a history of our church. And we asked, you know, we, we kind of said to ourselves, what, what do we think caused that? And the obvious thing, of, of course, people are scared, you know. And the bigger thing for us at that moment as elders, honestly, had nothing to do with how much. I mean, listen, I I mean, yes, do we want you to be faithful during this time? Like, you can give online, you can mail in uh, offering. I mean, like, like we still want you to be faithful. We have platforms that you can still give. You can still bill pay. You You can still actually give. Do we want people to be faithful to that for the fact that we still have bills to pay? We still have missionaries to support? Yes and amen. But in that moment, we weren't concerned as much about, okay, can we pay the bills, as we were more of like, this reveals where the soul of our people are at. This reveals where they may be not trusting God. Now, I mean, we could see a small drop-off, but it was such an astronomical uh, amount of, it was, it was, I believe it was about $700. We, we were just like, hey, this reveals where our people are at. This reveals like how have we done as shepherds? Maybe we haven't been maybe we haven't been really good about teaching and emphasizing the character of God. Do our people really trust God? Do they trust him when things look difficult? Do they trust that he's in control, that he's sovereign? Do they trust that he's wise? Do they trust that he's loving? Do they trust that he is good? In that moment, it was a hard question for all of our souls. And by the way, the best time to start doing that is to, to start getting the character of God and trusting him is way ahead of time. So I think what will happen is this. This is an opportunity for God's people to discover, is this my trust in God driving me to prayer? Is this driving me to be generous? Not only with my giving it through my church, but my giving to missionaries, with my giving to my neighbor, with how I support my neighbor, with how I share my resources with my neighbor. Like this will reveal, do we trust God? And for one thing, I would say this as your pastor, I, I see God's hand of spiritual depth on that for our souls. Like, I don't know all that God's doing. As we've said before, I Sometimes I know why, but I don't know why. Same situation here. I know why, but I don't know why. But I can see that God's people are being challenged to trust him, are being challenged to love, and are being challenged to meet him in prayer. And for that, I am thankful. As we end our our time here, church body, I do want to tell you a couple things. Um, Here's what I, I, I want you to do. One 
is if you're not on our email right now, I need you to get on our email list. And very simple. You can go to your email and email office at colliervillebible.org. Office at colliervillebible.org. If you're not on our email list, you need to be on our email list at least for this time because we will be... We will be emailing you pertinent, important things, and that's the one medium that, medium that we know we can get it right to you. We'll be posting stuff on Facebook and our social media, but not everybody has those or checks those things, and so uh, typically an email would be the best. But we're going to try to over-communicate what are our plans. We've only decided to do this for this Sunday. We'll reassess, we'll look, we'll, we'll, we'll consult, and we'll just make a decision for next weekend. Uh, but for right now, for this week, the, the official ministries that happen at our church body uh, will not happen. And we'll communicate with you later on in the week about next Sunday. I also want to let you know this. All of us elders are ready to minister to you. Although we are practicing uh, safe social distancing, that does not mean we are not available for prayer. And that does not mean we're, we are still not available to pray uh, in small groups. So, for instance... Um, like, I've, I've got somebody today that I'm talking to about baptism. Isn't that awesome? In the midst of this, someone wants to talk about baptism. I'll still meet one-on-one. And so, um, there, we as elders will still um, will, will minister to you. So, you can reach out and talk to us and call us. And even if you need us, you call on us. I would also say, church body, if you have a need during this time, if you maybe are a person who is more paycheck to paycheck and and if, if I don't know, I'm, I haven't been to the store in the last several days. I don't know what they look like. But if your resources are, or, or you're, you have gone to a, a hungry state, please, would you communicate with us? And what a wonderful opportunity for God's people to love each other and to do what God's people have always done for each other. Thank you. I love you. Our elders love you. And I look forward to when we can come back together and start gathering. That's going to be our goal. Would you pray with me uh, before we close off this live stream? So thankful, Father, for your loving hand. And would you deliver us from the times that we try to practice sinful fear and we start to fear anything but you? Thank you for your character that builds the opposite of fear, trust. Thank you for your goodness, your love, your wisdom, and your sovereign hand. Thank you for the life, death, burial, resurrection that we are justified today to believe these things. Thank you for your word that shows us how to walk in this pathway. We praise you. We thank you that you have built us for difficult situations in life. And you have built the message of the gospel and disciple making to thrive when things aren't perfect. So thank you for that. And we'll trust you and lean on you and lean on each other in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us.